This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, my name is Kathy. I live in Boise, Idaho, and I have a plethora of artwork. I have vintage things from mummage sales and garage sales I've collected since I was a kid. I have hand-me-downs given to me by friends and family, uh, things I've collected from traveling. I have too much, and I don't know how to pare it down, what makes sense to keep, and what makes sense to give away. Thanks. Welcome to How To. I'm Carvel Wallace. Somewhere in your house or apartment, you probably have a stack of things that you need to get rid of, but for some reason, you can't. Maybe it's some old books, a box of dusty records, some comics stashed under the bed. I myself have a binder with like 300 CDs that I carefully crafted and curated throughout my whole teens and 20s, and now it just sits unopened on a bottom shelf somewhere. Stuff just seems to stick around. It's like we can't let go of it. Sometimes it's because it's sentimental, and sometimes it's because we just don't know what to do with it or where to take it. But other times it's because we think it might actually be worth something, but we don't know where to begin to find out. Well, that's where Leela Dunbar comes in. I never in a million years thought that this is what I would be doing. I have the coolest job in the world. I appraise pop culture memorabilia. If you recognize Leela's voice, it's probably because you've seen her on Antiques Roadshow, where she appraises rare and sometimes bizarre sports and culture memorabilia. These are among the oldest baseball cards in existence. It is a true wow moment. To this day, Gone with the Wind is one of the best loved books. It's been estimated sold over 30 million copies. You would put an auction estimate of $3,000 to $5,000. Oh, wonderful. So you're going to keep them in the family, right? I want to, yes. Okay. I would insure it for at least $1 million. Are you serious? For Leela, ending up here kind of felt inevitable. Sports were all around me. My grandfather played football uh, in college. My dad was a demo derby and stock car driver. I had aunts who were nationally ranked tennis players. I had an uncle who was a first baseman in the Red Sox system who then got called up for World War II. And then my dad was a collector. He collected antique toys, advertising, folk art, uh, automotive and motorcycle memorabilia. All of that led Leela and her dad to running a memorabilia business for over a decade. And we were actually the forerunner of eBay. I wish I had that idea. Yeah. <laughs> uh, where we did auctions, you know, absentee auctions. So we'd have a big tote board and 300 items and people would call us and fax us in those days, uh, you know, to all hours of the night. She finally caught her big break in 1996 when she was invited to interview for a little local TV project that was going to be called Antiques Roadshow. Of course, it became a hit, it went national, and soon millions of viewers were watching Leela study and appraise collectibles. Eventually, she was offered a job at Sotheby's, a prestigious auction house in New York City. So it's like going from double A ball to the big leagues. <laughs> I went from selling stuff that was $5 to 25 grand to selling stuff that was 5,000 to, you know, 5 million. 
it was a great gig. I sold about $75 million worth of memorabilia, everything from the bat that Babe Ruth used at the very first home run ever, grand opening day Whoa. at Yankee Stadium, uh, Honus Wagner card in poor condition. I think it's up now in the millions. I also sold the estates of Catherine Hepburn, Johnny Cash, the collection of Cher. But the auction business is tough. So they actually closed the, the collectibles department, uh, except for special sales. And that's when I went on my own as an appraiser. And I had uh -huh. no idea whether I'd be successful or not. I didn't know if there was any business. And I've been doing it now for 15 years. And I can tell you, in 15 years, I have not had a quiet day. Wow. That's an amazing story. Almost like fate just decided this is what you're going to do here in this lifetime. But what do you love about it? I love the stories. Mm. Look, it's a license to be nosy. That's the bottom <laughs> line. <laughs> I, I never know who I'm going to meet, what I'm going to look at, or what I'm going to learn. So today on the show, Leela is going to get nosy with some of our listeners. We've got three people lined up to figure out what their stuff is worth. Kind of like our own mini Antiques Roadshow. And along the way... We're going to learn how to find value in our own stuff. So whether you have tchotchkes you cherish or an old collection you've been holding on to or a trove of antiques from your grandparents that you just don't know what to do with, we're here to help. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Defender. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Built for the modern explorer, the Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. And cargo capacity means more room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. Powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system keep you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. A vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Did you ever see the old 90s movie, The Sandlot? It's a coming-of-age tale about a bunch of neighborhood kids playing sandlot baseball in the early 1960s. Most people remember it for the famous line, You're killing me, Smalls! But the scene I always think about is the one with James Earl Jones. I'll trade you. Trading an autographed baseball. That's really nice of you, but that ball really is signed by Babe Ruth. So is this one, with the rest of the 1927 Yankees. Man, 
Rivers Row, Lou Gehrig, Babe Ruth. But why would you trade? That one's all chewed up. I got a lot of good stuff. Look at that stuff. Besides, you needed more than I do. Our first listener, Leslie, in Chicago, knows the feeling. She's tired of looking at all of her husband Alex's stuff. I wrote in because my husband and I have some basketball and baseball cards um, in the attic, and we never really know what to do with them. And we were wondering if we wanted to sell them, you know, how would we even get started? For Alex, the cards are not just random junk. They're connected to childhood memories. My friend John and I, we'd always walk home after school. We'd pass this one uh, five and dime every every you know day on the way home from school. Deacons or or Herdricks, there was two of them. And uh, I don't, I forget how much the packs of tops cost. You know, I want to say they were like fifty cents or a dollar or something. They had that gum in it, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> that terrible gum, terrible. Gum was it was so always, bad. Yeah, it was always rock hard, you know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and uh, and I, you know, not only just collecting the teams, I was, you know, we were always looking for the great players, right? Like Bonds or or Ken Griffey yeah. or whoever. And it was always exciting when you got one of those in your pack, you know. And uh, and then we would sort them all out. But yeah, just the camaraderie where, you know, we'd sit there for an hour just kind of flipping through the cards and we would trade them back and forth. You know, be like, oh, I got two of those, Mm -hmm. you know, I'll trade you this for that, you know, Mm -hmm. or something else. And um, I don't know, we were just having fun. You know, there was a card shop uh, pretty close to our middle school and I think he had a Mickey Mantle in there. And so we would go in there and just stare at it, you know. Just look at it. (laughs) Just look at it. We'd walk into this kind of dark and dusty spot and uh but there was all this memorabilia around yeah. you and it was it was so much fun leslie did you ever collect anything when you were a kid like see i wasn't a big collector like i had a lot of stuffed animals and i was very attached to my stuffies we were very connected <laughs> but i wouldn't say that it was like a collection like it wasn't like um you know beanie babies or whatever where i was yeah. like trying to get the whole set The problem, of course, with sentimental value is that it's personal. Just because something has meaning for you doesn't mean it has meaning for your partner, who you share space with. And that can be an issue. Alex, I'm curious how you ended up keeping some of them and getting rid of some of them. Like, how did you make that decision? No, I I did get rid of a lot and I'm not, I, you know, it's been almost 30 years. I had a couple boxes um, when I, I think there's between 500 to 1,000 per box. And I, I narrowed this collection down. I feel like I kept every card I thought may hold value in the future. I mean, I've always been fascinated with why baseball cards have value anyway. Like, I, I don't really get it. Even as someone who grew up as a sports fan, I had my own little collection of cards like most boys did. I still don't get why they're valuable at all, and especially why they seem to have skyrocketed in value during the pandemic. Can you talk a little bit about what creates that demand and why baseball cards in particular are kind of so frequently associated with um, gaining money on like a trader's market? Oh, Carvel, absolutely. The, the first thing about cards is that collectors generally have a, an emotional connection to them, which is what gives them value in the first place. And I agree with you, considering that they were cardboard and they were either, sports cards were originally inserted in tobacco packs to stiffen them and to be offered as premiums. And then later on, in the 20s and 30s, candy companies and then bubblegum companies started 
producing baseball cards to sell gum. And after World War II, Topps really took off on that and became a monopoly, basically, from the early 1950s to about 1980. If you were going to buy cards, you're generally going to buy Topps cards and you would get the gum. And it was generally a, a penny a card going up, I think, to 10 cents afterwards. People, you, know, you hear all the stories, just like Alex here, you know, people kept the cards, they collected them, they were fun to collect. Some people traded them, some people flipped them, uh, some people kept them in shoeboxes, never opened them, and, and inevitably a lot of them got thrown away, given to, you know, church sales. What makes them valuable today are these factors. It's all about the player, the issue, and the condition. So the most valuable cards, as the market has shown, are rookie cards of the most famous Hall of Famers in the best condition. So what does that mean? You look at it like a pyramid, and it goes back to supply and demand. If you've got a card of, say, and the most famous cards and the ones that are the most collected and the most expensive at this point, the early cards, most famous is Honus Wagner. That's from 1909. It's called a T206 tobacco card. These, this was a set that was issued from 1909 to 1911. And Honus Wagner, the story goes, uh, stopped the run of his cards, whether it was because he didn't want to promote kids with tobacco or whether he wasn't getting paid enough. No one knows until this day. And that card has taken on mythic proportions. There are about 60 of them, which means it's not uber rare, but that card has skyrocketed in value. If you have a Honus Wagner card, you have a lottery ticket. Modern baseball card valuation began in the 1950s when a collector named Jefferson Burdick put together a system to categorize them. He would ultimately donate his collection to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, but while he valued every other card at between 25 cents and a dollar, he valued the Honus Wagner at $50, which helped cement the legend of the T206. In 2022, one of them sold for $7.2 million. That's a lot of bubblegum. But before we get to the big reveal of what Alex's baseball cards are worth, let's bring in our other guest, Kathy. I live in Boise, Idaho. I'm a project coordinator, and I have a collection of art I've gathered over the years and um, objects from various places, rummage sales, garage sales, and people. And I just kind of wanted to find out what should I keep, what should I let go. Just like Leela, Kathy has always been drawn to items with a bit of history. I've gone to rummage sales, garage sales since I was a kid. I've always been collecting things that started out trying to find better quality clothes and stuff when I was younger, and then just moved on to objects. And I've collected a lot of that um, through rummage sales, but also uh, as a landlord in Milwaukee, I um, on occasion would swap uh, a painting for for rent because that's <laughs> what the artist had. Um, <laughs> I also had a little restaurant and I would show people's art and sometimes I would buy a piece of their art, that kind of thing. So I've, and and over the years, I, I've, I lived in really big apartments and houses and now I, I keep moving down smaller and it's just, it's kind of suffocating. <laughs> so I need to get mm. rid of some stuff. But I just, I have sentimental attachment to some of it and some of it I, I, I just think is really beautiful and I wouldn't toss, but 
some things I I know might be of some value. So it's just kind of hard to decide what to do. Yeah. I'm curious about the stuff that you have sentimental attachment to. Why? Like, what are some of the reasons that you feel that something represents more than just a potential to kind of like make money? What kinds of things make it important to you? Uh, I think it's just the memory of maybe that period of time in my life and, uh, mm. you know, what we were doing then or how I felt then. It, yeah, it's kind of odd, <laughs> you know, but it, it just is. I, and the memories attached to those things with my mom, me and my mom. This is back in the 70s. Um, uh-huh. And we didn't have a car, so we'd take the bus in Chicago and we'd bring our shopping carts. So we might have to walk home four miles sometimes, depending on <laughs> what kind of payload <laughs> we came back with. Um, it, was, it was always fun. I loved it. And uh, I even on, on occasion, depending if it was a really good rumor sale, because they always cycled through in the churches and you knew which ones had really good stuff and which ones were kind of crummy. So even if there was a really good one coming up, my mom would even let me take the day off school to go. It was amazing. <laughs> yeah. I'm wondering if you could tell me like, what's a favorite piece that, that you have and can you kind of describe it for us? Well, I think the most interesting thing that I have is this um, it's a, just the size of a business card, and it's actually a, a palm card that would be handed to people when they would attend um, like political rallies. And this particular one is for Abraham Lincoln. And this is a palm card that would be handed to people attending this Republican rally at the time when he was running for president. And on the back, it has this ridiculous fight song that would people would sing along to. <laughs> I can't imagine all the people that held that card and, uh, you know, all the things that happened during that time. And I just happened to find it in a box of photographs at a, at a garage sale in Chicago. Uh, God, I don't know, 25, 30 years ago. How much did you pay for that? Do you remember? I have the, I still have the box. The stuff came in a dollar for this box of stuff. <laughs> wow. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Did you collect stuff when you were growing up too? Like kind of like we talked about uh, Alex's baseball card collection. Oh, yes. Uh, embarrassingly, I did collect salt and pepper shakers. I'd <laughs> 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 go to the church sales and you'd find all these little odd ones. Um, so that was something I had a lot of. Uh, I, other than that, no, I don't, nothing in particular. I would just kind of look for things that would catch my eye. A bit of a magpie. <laughs> right. No, I understand that. And I I mean, I want to go back to Leela just quickly. Like at the heart of collecting, the salt and pepper shakers really made me think of this, but at the heart of collecting appears to be some kind of, I don't know, grasping for nostalgia. It's like, it's not our nostalgia, like none of us were there, but the feeling of like, you were connected to the past in this particular way and everyone has, all these people have touched it. Um, why do you think, Leela, as a culture, we hold on to certain items from the past? Oh, I think it's all about the emotional connection to the item, because let's face it, the, the actual value of any of these items is $2.95. It's all about the perceived <laughs> value. And, you know, if yeah. you've got a teddy bear that you loved as a kid and it made you feel safe and secure, uh, that's something that you were going to hold on to. I can tell you in terms of, you know, my dad, you know, grew up in an era where you had cast iron cars and uh, mechanical banks and Mm -hmm. that type of thing. And that's what he collected as he got older in comic books because, you know, he spent his childhood reading comic books and you get this emotional connection to, you know, your imagination gets spurred by Batman or Superman or, I mean, that's what it really all boils down to. And, you know, Carvel, when you're talking about the, the cards before, you know, to recap, 
when people are collecting, it's about the historical importance, as you mentioned, of the player, which is why Hall of Famer cards generally sell for much more than journeyman cards, but it also equates in desirability. You know, Mickey Mantle was a hero to a lot of kids. Mm -hmm. Michael Jordan was a hero. Mm -hmm. People mm -hmm. want to have a piece That's of that. So. It makes them makes them happy. I mean, people collect because it makes them happy. Right. That is the bottom line. It seems like we hold on to the Michael Jordan cards for the same reason we hold on to our grandmother's napkin set. Because we want to remember the people we love. You know, I am sentimentally attached to a lot of stuff. I have a lot of items. <laughs> but uh, these, <laughs> these, I'm not... I'm not that attached to him. I've forgotten about him for maybe 10 years or so. And, and Leslie and I are kind of going through our stuff and thinking about, you know, if, if we were to move in the future, what, you know, we have all this extra thing. And if, if they were, if they do hold some value, yeah. how do you make that happen? Uh huh. And then what if it turns out that they don't hold a lot of value? Do you think you'll keep them or will That's, you get yeah, rid of them? I, I don't know. I might keep them or I get rid of, you yeah. know, I, I don't even know what I would do to get rid of them. I don't want to just recycle them, right? I'd love to like give them to somebody who, would have fun with them, right. you know, because uh, they are, you know, they're 30 years old now. So there's some interesting stuff in there, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, there's a sense of meaning versus, I mean, I run into this all the time. Like something might not have sentimental value, but then I can't just like toss it in the trash because I'm like, but it was this thing from this time that is now past yeah. and it, I wish it totally. was still there. It, it can trigger that memory. Um, and so I want to get back to sort of like the salt and pepper shakers and the art stuff is like we kind of established that with um, baseball cards, there's these separate things that like the rarity of it and whatever. And I'm wondering, how do you determine the value of something like, say, a salt and pepper shaker? Like, what does one go through to figure out if that's has value outside of the nostalgia? Well, look, it's not that different. It's all about, again, you, here are your major value factors, the historic importance your enduring legacy of the piece, the rarity, the condition, authenticity, uh -huh. uh, and and then the the biggie is is desirability. Now with salt and pepper shakers, it's about the form when they were made, how rare they are. Mm. You know, overall, most salt and pepper shakers, uh, in my experience, are from a few dollars into the low hundreds. But like with anything else, there can be a special a special edition or a special designer or something that crosses over into another category like Disney memorabilia that, you know, say you've got, you know, uh -huh. early 1928 Mickey mini salt and pepper shakers. They're not only going to be collected by salt and pepper collectors, they're going to be collected by Disney collectors and that's going to give them more value. So that's what you, mm -hmm. that's what you have to look at. Um, yeah, you know, the first step in anything is identifying what it is and then looking at the overall hierarchy of where that fits in. What, you know, how special is it? How many were made? Uh, and that, that's, those are the things you look at. Kathy, can you tell us a little bit more about your collection? Like what else, what other things are you holding on to that you find interesting or valuable or wonder if they're valuable? Um, yeah, like we have a piece of uh, trench art from World War II, and we bought a, a house in Milwaukee uh, from a neighbor when he died. And um, he had uh, a piece of trench art that was made of a, looks like a fighter jet, um, and it's an ashtray, too. Um, that, that, I think, is kind of interesting. Um, uh, we have another piece of my husband's mother's that was made from a piece of shrapnel of a a bomb that uh, hit the 
uh, hospital train she was working on during World War II. And it was um, etched by a POW who um, was a nurse, but they wouldn't give him any kind of sharp mm. tools. So he like did it with, I don't know, he scratched it with a dental tool, something like that. That is such a fascinating collection. <laughs> I mean, this piece of shrapnel that's inscribed by a POW who couldn't get like a sharp tool. So I, I mean, that story is phenomenal. There's so much uh, humanity in that story. Leela, I'm wondering, does a story like that increase the value of something on the marketplace? Or is it just sort of like, that's nice, but that doesn't really do anything for us financially? It all depends. Because look, the greatest thing on the road show, for instance, it's all about the stories. It doesn't matter whether it's a yeah. dollar or a million dollars. It's it's all about getting the stories behind it. But if the story adds to what we call the provenance, if something is directly uh, from that athlete or person, that can add value. If it's a story about how it came to be, it all depends whether it captures someone's imagination. So the short answer to that, Carl, it, it just, it really just depends. In this case, um, my guess is that the story is great, but how much you would add to it, I I'm off the top of my head. I wouldn't think it would be a tremendous amount. When we come back, we'll find out just how much Alex and Leslie's cards are worth and where Kathy might find some help with her collection. Don't get lost in the attic. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance— then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things. I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving. Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts. We're back with appraiser Leela Dunbar, who has some thoughts about our listener Alex's baseball cards. 
Alex, un- unfortunately, I, I'm going to quote my um, executive producer at the Antiques Roadshow, mm. Marsha Bemko. She said, if you think you have a six-figure item in your house, you probably don't have a six-figure <laughs> item in your house. <laughs> and the thing about your cards, and we talk about Topps had a monopoly until 1980. Topps lost their monopoly in the early 80s. So a flood of card companies jumped into the fray. Donruss, Fleer, Upper Deck, NBA Hoops, the cards that you have, Alex. Mm. And what they did is that all of a sudden they produced all these issues. So instead of a player having one or two rookie cards, they might have 10 or 20 or 30 rookie cards. And they produced them in huge quantities. So we call that period basically from the mid 80s to the mid 90s, the junk period of cards because there's so many produced that you can still find them very regularly today. Mm. You know, you have some great cards. I mean, mm. and you even have a couple of interesting error cards, but the majority of your cards, you know, if you went to go sell them all, I, I think you and Leslie could get a good lunch out of there it. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I know that, um, you know, our cards are probably, you know, they, they're probably, like you said, in the like sub $20 range. They're not super rare or anything. So yeah, maybe we could go out to lunch and that would be great. <laughs> um, I mean, I would, I'll take it. But here's my thing is that it's also like volume. Mm-hmm. Like if we have a box of a thousand cards that each might be worth a mm. dollar, like that's a plane ticket or two. And, you know, mm. then we're talking about something. So if we have volume of something that is like kind of worth a little bit, like, would you recommend like eBay? Like what, what would one do with that? Yeah, it, Leslie, it really depends on how much time you have. Okay. If you want to try to sell mm-hmm. one by one on eBay, you can do that. And the majority of these cards going to be anywhere from a dollar to $20. Like the Jordan that you have is probably 10 to 20. The bow card again, maybe 20 to 30. And again, I'm assuming, you know, middle of the road condition on this. I'm mm. not a professional grader, but I've looked at thousands of cards so I can give a conservative opinion. The the Sosa card, again, the error card could be 15 to 30. So volume can work in, in your favor or against you. If you put these out individually, these are what you could probably get. If you go online and you look at a lot of auctions that come up, whether they're local auctions or sports memorabilia auctions, you'll see oftentimes that they're selling in large group lots. And I have to say, Leslie, when the, when that happens, you're probably, someone's going to probably pay pennies because these don't turn over quickly because there's such a great supply. So not they're, they're not a hugely easy sell in quantity, but if you did them individually and you had the time, yeah, over time, they absolutely do add up. Okay. And it turns out that eBay isn't the only place in the virtual swap meet space. There's also an app called Collex, spelled C-O-L-L-X, that lets you scan your cards with your phone and find the value quickly. So if you have old sports cards that you want to value and sell, this might speed up the process. Anyway, it looks like Alex and Leslie probably have enough for a nice dinner out, which is nothing to sneeze at, certainly better than rock-hard bubblegum. But what about Kathy? What is her collection worth? Here's my recommendation for general memorabilia for both for both Kathy and Leslie and, and Alex, because I know you have a variety of items. 
there's a certain amount of information you can get online. I would do that first to try to educate yourself. I always recommend for what we call decorative arts and, and fine arts to start with an auction house. Uh, if you have something that's unsigned, that unless there's some extenuating circumstance it's a long lost you know picasso that he didn't sign that day because he was in a hurry <laughs> generally those items generally those items don't have a whole lot of value uh, but what you want to do is you want to check with people who do this every day local auction houses are a great source they will come into your house uh, if you ask them if you have enough items, particularly, and this happens a lot in the States, uh, auction houses will come in and they'll basically give you a guideline. It's the cost of doing business for them. You know, so they generally, unless they're doing an estate tax appraisal, they're generally not charging because they're coming in to ascertain auction estimates because they want to sell your stuff. And this is how they get property. So I, I highly recommend that if you've got something that's in a specialty area, what I recommend is researching what those auction houses are that handle that. For instance, in sports, there are at least eight to 10 auction houses. And in other areas of pop culture, you know, Google is your best friend. Um, you can, you can find out who may be handling it and then send photos. And that, to me, is the most direct way of being able to find out. You know, especially with, with Kathy, you've got, like I said, a house full of stuff. As I said, the, the best way, I think, is to get a local auction house to come in because they're generalists. They generally know uh, a little about a lot of things, and they can pro generally pretty quickly separate the, the trash from the treasure. Mm. Kathy, what's your reaction to this? Like, is this, are you finding this helpful as someone who has a house full of stuff? Yeah, that is helpful. I am, uh, I guess I'm always a little surprised that I, there doesn't seem to be a lot of interest in that Lincoln card because it just seems like it's something that is kind of surprising that it survived. But, um, yeah, I guess that would probably be the most useful way to go to go with an auction house because there's artwork and there's objects and, I have no idea. And maybe it's all trash. I have no idea. But, uh, I guess that would be the best way to go. Okay, so here's another tip. If you're like Kathy and you have a ton of stuff, look up auction houses in your area. They're going to be able to give you an unbiased assessment of just what you have and what they might be able to help you sell. You know, I guess I have a, a thought, Carvel, because you were talking about this idea of like collective nostalgia versus sure. something that's like personally interesting or mm -hmm. meaningful. Like, I think you have to balance it. Like being a collector is nice and having things that are meaningful to you, but just because something's a collectible, it's like, well, do I want to collect this or is it just a thing? Like, yeah. you know, um, and I feel like we get a little bit weighed down by stuff oh, in, sure. in general in our culture. Yeah. yeah. Well, I would imagine that's where the story comes in. And that sounds like something you yeah. and Alex can probably have many spicy <laughs> and interesting conversations about. Um, but I do like the idea of even just taking one thing and just framing it. I remember when my kids mm. were little, you'll relate to this as parents. And um, is is that, you know, they'd make all this art every year. I have two kids. My daughter just graduated literally yesterday, right? My youngest. And so you can imagine how many like macaroni necklaces <laughs> and paintings and whatever that we had over the years. And so at the end of every year, we had this huge collection of they'd come home with all this stuff. And then I would just start this thing where I would secretly, I would just select like three pieces from the year that they did. And I would put them yeah. in a portfolio and so, and like everyone was clear and like, we would just toss the rest. And I never, when I was little explained, Hey, we're throwing this all away. Like I just kept the three pieces from him mm -hmm. and the three pieces from her and then had them a little portfolio. And then that became their art collection over the course of time. And so it's like, you got to pare things down 
and it was sad to let go of stuff, but you also got to prioritize just one thing in saying like, this is going to be my memory of this time. Yeah. It's like, you know, this thing they made in second grade. Oh, that's sweet. Let, one last question. Um, each of you, uh, Kathy, Leslie, and Alex, what are you going to do next with your collections? Oh, good question. I Well, now I feel like uh, I might hold on to it for a little bit because <laughs> of the nostalgia attached to it. I mean, I, the more I've been thinking about it, you know, if there's no real inherent value financially with it and, um, you know, I don't know, maybe it'll, it, it's always fun to kind of go through and, and maybe I will pick one or two of these from the collection and, and, and right. frame them or something so that I can always look at that. And maybe my, you know, maybe our kids will have fun with it or I'll, I'll find a place to, you know, that will take them for pennies on the dollar. <laughs> Anything I don't want, you know, cause I don't want to carry extra stuff with me for the rest of my life, but I, I do appreciate the collection that I have and it still brings back those, those feelings of nostalgia in, in that time period for me. So you know. I think we take Carvel's approach like to the art, we take three, <laughs> but maybe yes. not three cards. Like maybe we take like, you know, like a dozen or 20. Like, I just don't no, like, do we no. need a thousand? <laughs> I don't know. No. <laughs> um, and uh, Kathy, what about you? Uh, yeah, I'm going to go through my artwork, especially, um, and really pare it down. And if it's not on the wall, I probably am not that attached to it. So it can go. That's a good starting place. Mm, there you go. Yeah. I love it. All right. Um, thank you guys so much. Like I've had such a great time talking about this stuff and it's been great to go down memory lane with everyone here and to go down my own memories. And I just want to offer a sincere thank you to Leela and Kathy and Leslie and Alex for coming in and telling your stories. Thanks for having us. This is great. Thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Carvel. We are surrounded by stuff. It's in our closets, basements, attics, and storage units. And the truth is, because most things are mass produced, most of it is unlikely to suddenly be that winning lottery ticket that erases all of our debt in an instant. But it can still have meaning. We can hold on to objects for reasons other than what they might be worth. Maybe it reminds us of our childhood. Maybe we just find it beautiful. Maybe an uncle gave it to us with a wild story. Maybe we keep it because it's one of the last things our mother touched before we lost her. The point is, not everything is important, but a few things are, and we should value them. Sometimes that means selling them for the money that we need, but sometimes that means simply setting them aside in a safe place so that we can hold them from time to time and reminisce and reflect on how time passes for us all and how precious it all is. A huge thanks to Leslie, Alex, and Kathy for sharing their collection of stories with us and to our expert, Leela Dunbar, for helping us unlock the true value of memories. If you rely on how-to to sort through the attic of your life, the best way to support the show is by joining Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Signing up for Slate Plus helps us help all the people you hear on our podcast every week. Members will never hear another ad on our podcast or any other Slate podcast. You'll also get free total access to Slate's website, plus you'll be supporting our important work. So I hope you'll join if you can. To sign up now, go to slate.com slash how to plus again that's slate.com slash how to plus thanks 
Do you need some help appraising a situation in your life? Send us a note at howtoitslate.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-495-4001, and we might have you on the show. How To's executive producers Derek John, Rosemary Belson, and Kevin Bendis produced this episode. Merritt Jacob is senior technical director. Charles Duhigg created the show. Amanda Ripley is my co-host, and I'm Carvel Wallace. Thanks for listening. <laughs>